Well, we're just so happy you decided to join us today. If you're looking for a way to connect, you can head out to the lobby at the welcome desk. We'd love for you to join a small group or even serve with us. Or if you're online, you can go ahead and click the link above. Another great way to connect is a foundations class. This class is designed for new believers who want to learn what it means to follow Christ. Classes start on October 17th, so check us out online and register there. Hanger students, we already know that Sunday is the best night of the week, but coming up on October 3rd is our fall kickoff, which is like a normal service times a billion. There'll be food, games, an amazing worship set, and an even better service. So hope to see you there and maybe bring a friend. Guess what? Trunk or Treat is back. Save the date, October 30th. This is a great outreach event. If you'd like to host a trunk or invite someone from your neighborhood, we would love to see you there. Look for registration in the next couple of weeks. Hey, did you hear that Pastor Rod has a big announcement next week? You won't want to miss it either. We hope to see you then. And in the meantime, sit back and enjoy the message. Well, good morning, Fairfax Church. It is delightful to see you all. You're awake. Wow, you guys, you guys are ready to go this morning. Um, my name is Jessica Eitvelecht. I am one of the pastors on staff here. I am uh, one of the youth pastors, which means uh, that fall kickoff that you just heard about a minute ago is, uh, that's us, and we're super excited. And I just wanted to say a word. Um, it's particularly, like, if you are a, if you're sitting in this room right now and you're a middle school student or a high school student or you're the parent of a middle school student or a high school student, then um, then I want you to listen, and the rest of you can ignore me if you want. Um, Leanne and Izzy just talked about fall kickoff for just a second, and I just wanted to say uh, that if you have been thinking about, you've been on the fence about getting connected to uh, student ministries here, to our youth group, that it is not too late for you to do that. I know like school's been in for like a month and sometimes you get to like, it doesn't take long before you're like, everybody knows each other already. Everybody's already connected. I don't wanna start now. Like I missed it. And I just wanna say emphatically, that is not the case. Like it is not too late for you to come and get connected. We haven't even had our fall kickoff yet, right? So, uh, so there's plenty of time for you to come and get connected to a small group and hang out. You can come tonight at 4.30 or 6.30. Um, our middle schoolers meet at 4.30. Our high schoolers meet at 6.30. We would love to help you get connected. Uh, and we would love to see you at fall kickoff. If you uh, have any questions, Kyle and I are both here. We will be here after the service. We would love to answer those for you. Um, so yeah, we'd love to have you over in the hangar. We are in the third week of this Exodus series on, the rest of you should listen again. Um, we are in the third week of our Exodus series, Journey to Freedom, and uh, we Exodus is all about the pursuit of freedom. It's about moving past the things that enslave us and keep us from experiencing the life that God created us to live. And two weeks ago, Rod taught us that one of the main themes that runs through Exodus is that the journey to freedom is not just about being set free from being forced to serve someone. It's about being set free to serve God. And, uh, and because real freedom is giving your life in service to God. It's serving the living God. It's allowing God to be your Lord in every sense of the word. And then last week, we talked about how Moses's call uh, to serve God, how that call came after he had committed what is arguably one of the biggest mistakes of his life. It came after he had killed an Egyptian um, who was beating up another a Hebrew slave, one of his, who he, one of his countrymen, and, uh, and he kills this Egyptian and he flees the land. And, uh, and his call to what will be the biggest mission of his life 
comes after the biggest failure of his life. And, uh, and so Rod reminded us last week that, uh, that what you think maybe is, is a mistake that has set you permanently on a plan B for your life, that's not the case. That, uh, that when it comes to God, that, that plan A is always the plan. That God is moving you forward on plan A and, uh, and that God can use you no matter what you've done, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what it is. Um, in fact, God wants to and does use all of us, imperfect as we are. Today, we're gonna talk about chapters seven through 12. Now, if you know me, like if you've been around for a while, maybe heard me preach a few times, then you may be here, oh, Jess has five chapters today. This isn't, this is, we're gonna be here a while. Like I, my, my preferred way of preaching, what I like to do is to just like, let's just open to it. Let's just work our way through it. Let's read all of it because you know, in my view, like more Bible is never a bad thing. And so, uh, so I just like to just work my way through it slowly, but um, we don't get to do that today. So uh, we are gonna kind of, I'm gonna kind of catch you up. We're gonna go seven through 11. I'm just gonna tell you, you are welcome to follow along in your Bible. We're gonna start in chapter seven. Um, you're welcome to follow along with that. And then we'll kind of plant ourselves in chapter 12 um, for the last little bit. So, uh, so that's the plan. First, a little bit of a refresher, because we can't, we can't do this without reminding us of where we are in the word and all of those things, right? So Exodus is the second book of the Bible. So if you're trying to find it, it's right there at the very beginning, Genesis and then Exodus. And it tells the story of how God freed the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. It is a theological word that uh, could be used to describe Exodus is that it is kerygma, which is a theological proclamation seeking to tell the community's salvation story did you catch that? It's the theological proclamation seeking to tell the community salvation story so that, this is important, subsequent generations will know and encounter the liberating God of Israel, the liberating God of Exodus. So kerygma means that it's the theological proclamation of what God did so that later generations will know and understand who the liberating God of Exodus is. They will know the story. Kerygma. Um, fun fact, I am told that my last name, which um, it's been a while since we did the tutorial, so real quick, it's Eitvlucht, and the first part is like kite without the K, and the last part is like duct tape, but with a VL, Eitvlucht, and uh, I get the question a lot, so every once in a while, I like to remind you, I'm told that my last name uh, in Dutch, it's Dutch, because that's usually the next question, is um, it translates loosely to the Exodus. So um, if you speak Dutch and would like to confirm or, uh, or, or question that, then you're welcome to talk to my husband because I am not Dutch. Um, and you can play Dutch bingo together. And if you don't know what that means, then don't worry about it because all the Dutch people in the room understood everything I just said. So uh, anyway, so Exodus opens with these people, people who descend from the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, uh, and are now enslaved in Egypt and are calling out for help. And God hears their cries and sees their suffering and responds. God responds by calling Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand their freedom. But Moses, as we talked about last week, is petrified by this idea. Does not think himself worthy or capable of this mission that God has sent him on. And God kind of has to negotiate with him to get him to do it. And finally, when God tells him to take his brother Aaron with him, Moses agrees to go and give it a shot. And so now we are in chapter 7. 
Moses goes before Pharaoh and demands that he lets the Hebrew slaves go to the wilderness to worship God. That's the, um, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks too, that, that that's the demand that Moses is making. It's not to let my people go permanently from slavery. That's not actually what Moses is asking Pharaoh. Whether or not that's like what Moses knew he was actually asked, like once we're out, we're not coming back. Whether or not that was the thought, I don't know. But the actual request is let us go and worship God in the wilderness. And, uh, and Pharaoh all but laughs him out of the throne room in the early part of chapter seven. So God says, okay, go back. But this time, tell Pharaoh that the Nile River is going to turn to blood so that he will know that I am God. And Moses does that. Uh, Moses turns the river to blood, but he doesn't just turn the Nile River to blood. He turns all the water in Egypt to blood. So even the water that's in pots or buckets that they had already gotten out of the river, say earlier that day, so that they would have it for cooking and for drinking water and for all the things that we use water for, right? All of that water that they had already taken for use for the day, all of that water turns to blood. All of the fish in the Nile River die because they're now swimming in blood instead of in uh, water. And, uh, and so... Um, all the, it smelled, as you can imagine, like the smell was just disgusting. And, uh, and Pharaoh is unmoved. The second plague was an infestation of frogs. Verse three of chapter eight says that they will hop up from the river to assault your palace, make their way into your bedroom, and even crawl into your bed. Okay, again, disgusting, right? That there's just gonna be frogs everywhere. It says the frogs will be in your ovens and in your kneading bowls. So you're trying to like bake bread and you've got frogs like everywhere. Um, So this one gets Pharaoh's attention. Pharaoh's like, oh, this is weird. So he calls Moses and says, hey, make these frogs go away. And Moses says, okay, but first you have to let our people go. Pharaoh says, okay. And, uh, And then when Moses makes the frogs go away, Pharaoh says, "Never mind, we're not doing that. The third plague is a swarm of gnats. The gnats are all over all the people, all over all the livestock, but Pharaoh's heart was hard as stone. Nothing happens. Now, the plagues start to level up incrementally after the third, okay? So we've got the first three, and then this next three uh, are a little bit different. They go from just being kind of irritating to being um, pretty destructive. And so I actually, I found this chart that, uh, that I asked the communications team to, uh, to kind of recreate for me so that it didn't have my like iPhone shadow over it in my book, you know? And, um, and this, this chart kind of helps us. There's a bunch of different ways that you can group the plagues. And I thought this was really interesting. I had never really taken the time to think about the plagues and the ways in which they were similar and different before. And so you can see that there's like the first three Aaron's staff introduces and then the last three of that, of that first group of nine, Moses' staff introduces. And then look at how like the progression, three of them that delivered at the Nile, the next three at the palace, and then the last three begin without warning. The first group, you can see that Pharaoh hardens his heart after the response to them. And then in the last group, the scripture tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart to those last ones. And then you can see the set of triplets. And this is kind of what I mean by like how it's gonna level up. You see that there's the irritation of these first three. And then the next three, uh, there's destruction as a result of the plagues. And the last three, that, there is, uh, that there's death as a result of those last three. And then of course, our 10th plague um, that, that we're gonna get to in a little bit uh, is kind of the ultimate plague that kind of defies all categories. So, um, so yeah, so you can just leave that up. Maybe it's helpful to you as we go to like follow along with where we are 
uh, in the story. And if not, then that's okay too. So um, the fourth plague is a swarm of insects. And these insects wipe out kind of a lot of the land. Um, And only beginning with this plague, this is the first plague of the group where the people of Israel, the Hebrew people who live in a part of Egypt called Goshen, um, are not affected by the plague. So these these, uh, insects are swarming and wiping out crops and wiping out um, all sorts of things. And uh, and Goshen and the people who live in Goshen and the things that belong to the people who live in Goshen are unaffected by the insects. Um, So Pharaoh is ready to start negotiating after this one. He says, okay, offer up your sacrifices, but do it here. You can't leave the land of Egypt. Fine for you to sacrifice some things to your God, but do it from here in Egypt. You can't leave. And Moses is like, no, that's not the plan. So, uh, so no, thank you. And um, he says that they need at least three days journey to get to wherever it is that they're going and at least three days to come back. And he and Pharaoh kind of go back and forth for a minute, but it ultimately doesn't matter because once the insects have, been, have gone, then Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. Plague number five is a disease that affects the livestock. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the cattle, and the sheep, they all get this disease and begin to just, they just die. They just one by one start to die, but Pharaoh refuses to budge. The sixth plague is boils on the skin of all the people and all the animals. They just, all of the, everything living, everything Egyptian that's living just starts to break out in these, um, in these like weeping boils. And uh, chapter nine, verse 12 tells us that Pharaoh was not moved by the miraculous signs and wonders just as God had told Moses would be the case. The last three plagues get pretty bad. The seventh is a hailstorm and, and God warns If you want to live, bring you and anything that you want to live inside to a structure because anything that is outside will be killed by the hailstorm. So so that's what happens. Um, It's the worst hailstorm that had ever been seen. The text says that it crushed every crop and it shattered every tree, except in Goshen, again, where the Hebrew people lived. So Pharaoh sends for Moses, because this is bad. Think people and things are dying, right? And he agrees to let the people go. Okay, you can, you can leave to go worship God. You can go into the wilderness. Um, but as soon as Moses clears the storm, Pharaoh goes back on his word and refuses to let anyone leave. So, uh, so the Lord sends a plague of locusts to blanket the ground. Any crop left after the other plagues is gonna be eaten by these locusts, and there will be no crops that remain in Egypt. Every tree will be stripped of its leaves. There's gonna be nothing left. The Egyptian people are facing starvation as a result of this plague. Uh, And so the servants of Pharaoh, they come to Pharaoh and they beg him to give in to Moses and to Aaron. Now remember where we came from. Remember the story of how the Hebrew people ended up in Egypt in the first place. 400 years earlier, it was because of a famine. And remember that Joseph, who is uh, one of the sons of Jacob, and he, uh, remember that whole story about Joseph. I'm not gonna retell you the whole story. But, uh, but remember that Joseph comes to Egypt because he's a slave and, uh, and works his way up in Pharaoh's palace, predicts the famine, and makes sure that the, that the Egyptian nation is able to feed the world when this famine strikes the world. And now 400 years later, as we're trying to get the Hebrew people out of Egypt, the Egyptian nation is the one that is facing starvation because of, uh, because of their sin, because of the sin of their nation in holding these people captive. And, uh, and so they're facing starvation. And the, um, his, his counselors are like, you got, you've got to give in. We can't, we can't survive this. There will be nothing left. So Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back again and tries to negotiate. He agrees to letting the men go. 
Okay, all of the men of, of Israel, they can go and make their sacrifices and then come back. But the women and the children have to stay here. And, uh, and Moses says, absolutely not. Everybody is coming. And by the way, we're taking all of our livestock as well because we're gonna have to make sacrifices and we don't know until we get there what we're gonna need to sacrifice. So we need all of our animals as well as all of our people in order to do this. So uh, he flatly refuses that offer. Pharaoh gets real mad and kicks him out. And so God sends the locusts. So it's pretty scary in Egypt now. Pharaoh knows it and he begs for mercy. But when the locusts clear, he breaks his promise again. So God sends a plague of darkness, so dark that the people could not even see each other for three days. And now Pharaoh's offer is, okay, everyone can go, but you have to leave your herds and your livestock behind. And Moses is like, no, did you not hear me? I just told you. We don't know what we're gonna have to offer when we get there. So we have to take every, everybody and everything has to come with us. That's the only offer. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. And this time, Pharaoh is mad. Chapter 10, verse 28. Get out of here and never come back. If you ever try to see my face again, I will have you killed. And Moses responds, what you say is true. I will never see your face again. It is about to get very dark. If you're not familiar with the story, if this is the first time that you have maybe encountered the story, I just want to give you that warning that where we're headed is a place that is, that is scary and dark to read about. The final plague is, uh, is the plague of death of every firstborn child. Uh, from Pharaoh's firstborn son to the firstborn of the servants, Moses warns the Pharaoh that unless he lets the Hebrews go, every Egyptian firstborn will die in the night that there will be a wail unlike anything you've ever heard as parents wake up to discover that their children are dead. God tells Moses that after this plague, Pharaoh will not only free them, he will practically force them from the land. And so they need to be ready to go and they need to be ready to go fast because things are gonna happen real quick after this. And so Moses issues that warning to Pharaoh. This is, this is it. This is what's going to happen if you don't let us go. And then he leaves Pharaoh's presence and returns to the Hebrew people. Which brings us to chapter 12. Beginning with verse one of chapter 12, we're gonna turn our attention from this confrontation between Moses and Aaron and God and, uh, and the Pharaoh. And we're gonna kind of turn our attention to uh, Moses giving the instructions of God that, uh, that God is giving to the people of Israel in light of what is about to happen, in light of this coming final plague of death. And we read this in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That night, that same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left until morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So we're gonna unpack a bunch of that stuff 
in a few minutes and, um, and talk a little bit about uh, what some of those things mean as I understand them. Uh, but there's at least two different things happening in, um, in this Passover meal, this, this part about the Passover. The people are going to eat one last meal in their Egyptian homes, um, but it's not just a commemorative meal. The lamb that they're going to eat also serves this dual purpose. We read in verse 21 of that same chapter, then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, the Lord will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorframe and will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So this lamb that they're going to eat as their last meal, uh, eaten in haste, the blood from that lamb will be put on their doorsteps and of their homes, and, uh, and by putting the, that blood on the doorframe, then that will cause uh, the judgment of God to pass over their house. That will be the sign to God that the people who live here um, are God's people, and so they will pass over. The blood of the lamb, literally, will save them. It will save them from death, it will save them from slavery, it will save them from, save them from destruction. Here's the thing, it will do that. These are the instructions Moses is giving for them to do. It hasn't actually done that yet, right? When we receive these instructions from Moses to the people, um, all we've received so far are instructions for what we are supposed to do. At the exact moment that the instructions are being given, they're still slaves. Nothing has changed about their lives. They are still in Egypt. Uh, nothing has happened yet. They are told that this will save them, but they have to do some things before they will be saved. They have to choose to move forward into this new reality, to finally, truly say goodbye to what is the only life that any of them have ever known and to step into this unknown future. We have the benefit of hindsight, right? Like we're reading the story thousands and thousands of years later. So we know that it's the right thing to do to put the blood over your door frames and to then leave the land the next day. Um, but we also know, because we have the benefit of hindsight, that what awaits them on the other side of this, what must have been very scary night, is not like smooth sailing from here on out, right? What's waiting for them on the other side is 40 years of wilderness, is, is all these other things, is, um, is eating the same meal over and over every day for decades and decades. Spoiler alert, by the way, sorry. But um, we've got all of these things that are waiting for them. We know that it's not just like smooth sailing on the other side, and they, but they still, they have to make the choice to do it. We have the benefit of hindsight to know that it's the right decision, but we're not naive. And the past holds only slavery and death. The present holds only slavery and death. The future holds freedom and life. And that is what they're being asked to choose from on this night, is an unknown future or a past that they know. Now this is a critical moment in Israel's history, in the story of the people of Israel. The story of the Passover, it's not just a story in the Hebrew Bible. The story of the Passover is the story in the Hebrew Bible. It is the moment where life looked one way and then life looked a different way. It's the turning point that everything uh, moves around. Henceforth, for God's people, all of time originates in, is oriented to, commemorates each year their release from slavery. Time for God's people is forevermore freedom time. There was slavery time before, but now after this, there will be freedom time. They have to let go, though, 
of the old time, of the past, of the things of the past, in order to walk in to the new future that God has for them. And they have to do that together as a community. They have to do that, uh, all of them together have to leave or it doesn't really work, right? Like a couple of them can't make the decision to go and everybody else stay behind. Like the the whole community together has to leave behind their past as they walk into a new future. And at the same time, each family has to make the individual choice. Did you catch that? That each, there were no, I think this is interesting, there are no priests there is no church hierarchy. There is no religious structure who is, telling, who is performing these rituals for them. No one's going to slaughter the lamb for them. Each family has to make the choice for themselves to follow God into this future. We sometimes in the church, uh, sometimes like the broad church, not necessarily our expression, but um, I hear at least that we have this constant um, battle between the, uh, the decisions that the community has to make, like the, the larger group of us, uh, the, the like, um, yeah, the congregational decisions that we have to make versus our individual decisions that we have to make. And sometimes those two things get pitted against each other, right? Is it all about what the whole community does and that as a community, we are either forgiven or not or make good decisions or bad decisions? Yes, it is. Is it about whether as individuals, we are, uh, whether we are with God or not, whether we make good decisions or not? Yes, it is. And in this story, this story doesn't allow us to separate out the community versus the individual. It requires all of us to move together, but each of us to make our decisions, each family to make a decision for their family, what they're going to do on what must have been a terrifying night to be walking into. So um, they have to do this together. They have to move forward together, but everyone has to choose it for themselves. Now the instructions for this Passover meal tell them to slaughter the lamb at twilight, literally between the evenings, the hour of transition from day to night, a time of ending and a time of beginning. And they are to wipe the blood on their door frames, the place from which they go in and out of their homes, this transitional place between out there and in here. Their houses are not permanent dwellings. They have provided short-term protection. It's been 400 years, but still technically short-term protection. Their most important feature is the doorway, the site of entry and exit. And the lifeblood from the lamb is going to mark the exit, protecting, hallowing, and preparing for their departure from slavery in Egypt. Even the instructions about the meat are symbolic. To leave nothing behind, that's what it tells us, is that you're supposed to eat eat everything. If you don't eat it, burn it. There's no need for leftovers right? Like there's no need to ration what you're eating tonight so that you have some left over for tomorrow because tomorrow you won't be here to eat them. So they're told to eat everything. Don't leave anything behind. Don't pack it away for later. And to eat with your staff in one hand, your sandals on, your cloak tucked into your belt so that you you are ready to go. You are ready to run. And when your meal is in one hand and your staff is in the other, then you can't hold on to anything else that is supposed to stay in Egypt. God wants them ready to go. And I would argue that maybe that's because God doesn't want anything to tempt them to stay behind, to hold them back, to keep them trapped in the past. Because God knows that for all of us, humans that we are, it can be so very hard to move forward into an unknown future away from all the things and people and relationships and sins and attitudes and systems that enslave us. That even as we call out to God from the midst of our suffering all too often, when the way out has been presented to us, we hang back. We, we kick off our shoes. We dawdle by doorways. 
Maybe Egypt isn't so bad after all. At least here, I know where my food's gonna come from. I have a shelter over my head. I know who I am in Egypt. There's not any question about my identity in Egypt. The, uh, the who I am in relationship to other people, I'm, I'm real clear on who they are and who I am and what the relationship dynamic looks like. I know what my job is. I don't have to worry about what I'm gonna do every day. I just, I know what I get up and I go and I do it. Maybe things aren't so bad in Egypt. At least I know where I stand. But the blood of the lamb represents the beginning of your future. The beginning of the freedom that can be found if you simply walk forward. And so, church, as the congregation of God, which is what Israel is called at the beginning of this passage, I think we must ask ourselves this morning, what's our Egypt? What's enslaving us this morning? Most of us are living at least some part of our lives in Egypt. What part of your life is enslaved? I quit something this year. To be very clear, it was not enslaving me. That would be a much too dramatic way to put this, but uh, it was not a toxic relationship or a system of oppression, but I think it maybe it would be helpful to tell you about as a way of illustrating um, the point. So for about 13 years, and specifically myself for at least the last 10, we as a ministry, myself, Kyle, and the rest of our team have been heavily involved with an, a youth ministry organization. And the, uh, the purposes of the youth ministry organization that I'm not gonna name because I quit it, and I still love and respect them, uh, uh, that uh, this youth ministry organization has like two purposes. And the first one is to coach youth pastors. And so as a part of that organization, I was a coach and I was being coached by somebody um, who was a little bit further down the line than me in different ways. Um, and then uh, I also had people that I was coaching who were maybe a little bit newer to ministry than, um, than I was. And so, um, so that was a big part of, of what they did. And then the other part of what they did were these um, week-long work projects that were also student leadership conferences. And so we would go on these week-long trips and we would work all day long. And then um, in the evening, our students would all participate in, uh, in these student leadership services and worship services. And if you've been around for a while, you've heard us talk about them. And we typically just sing the praises of the organization, of the mission trip. And I have, for the vast majority, I mean, there's like, it's like anything, right? All the things that were hard about the different trips, eventually you learn a lot about them and from them, right? And so in the end, you just tell the good news. Like you just tell about the good things. And, um, and so that has been what we've done for a really, really long time. But over the years, um, we started to feel some tensions with the organization. And at first, there were tensions that like we could just laugh about. And it was like, well, that's just them. They're just, you know, they're them. And then, um, and then it was like, okay, well, that, that really bothered me. I think maybe I'm gonna get in there and try to do something to help fix that thing, right? Like, I don't wanna just complain about it. So let me get involved. Let me, um, let me lend my voice to the conversation. Um, and different things, like diversity of the, of the people who are speaking. Like, you know, we've got all of these women in the organization. Why aren't any of them up there talking? That type of stuff that, um, that I was like, okay, well, if that's a problem for me, then I should get in there and I should maybe suggest some of those things and, and help. But it just, over the years, like, I'm, I'm talking years that went by that just, things just kept happening and it just felt like the quality of the programming got worse. Just also, I don't wanna talk negatively about them. So let's just say that the things that were tensions started to become like bigger and bigger issues that didn't feel like they were being addressed. And, um, and everybody on my team, this is the part that they could, everybody on my team wanted out. 
Kyle, Jackie, the whole rest of the team was like, why are we still doing this? Let's move on. And I was the holdout. I was the one who was like, but I have relationships with these people. I'm involved here. Here are some of the the arguments that I was making. Maybe you can see how this relates. Um, I knew who we were when we went on one of their trips. We were one of their biggest youth groups by far. So um, there was a lot of accommodation made for us when we would show up because we were one of the larger groups. I had been a part of it for years. And so um, the people, the, the woman who was coaching me started coaching me before I met the man who's now my husband and I have two children with, okay? That's a long time that she had been coaching me. Uh, and so, uh, so I had relationships there. Um, I was affirmed in different ways there. There were all sorts of things, right, about my identity, about who our group was, about the things they would do for us that were keeping me from wanting to finally say, okay, we're done. This is no longer in the best interest of our students. And also, I didn't wanna have the conversation I didn't want to take the step of courage to call the person on the phone that I respect and value and have known for a long time and say, we're not gonna be a part of your organization anymore. And I know that that hurts your bottom line and hurts you in other ways, but that is the, I didn't wanna do it. I didn't wanna do it. So I just didn't do it for a long time Uh, until this year when I finally did it. And here's the thing that walking away from that organization um, freed me to do. Not only did I free up a lot of my time because I'm not spending a lot of time trying to help fix them anymore, um, but it also freed my imagination to be able to think about the future of student ministries for us as a church in a different way. And because I was no longer tied to this group and to what they wanted to do in the summer, we were able to think creatively about doing Camp Grow this past summer, which if you were around or if you had kids who participated, was this incredible week of uh, of a VBS-style camp that we did with Children's Ministry that was just revolutionary for us in so many ways. Had Had I not quit, Camp Grow never would have happened. So it was only because I walked away from the thing that I didn't want to walk away from because I was scared uh, that I had a new future, that a new vision was able to emerge for me of what was on the horizon. I had to stop dawdling at the doorway. I had to stop talking about leaving and how I wanted to leave. And I had to actually get up and leave, pick up the phone, call. What's in your life right now that you know needs to go because it's holding you back? What's in your life that's toxic, it's oppressive, it's outside of God's best plan for your life? Most of us are living some part of our life in Egypt. What is it for you? Perhaps it's how you spend your time or your money. A friend of mine said that if you look at your calendar or your bank account over the last year and you find yourself either surprised or disgusted, that might be a clue to where you are enslaved. Or perhaps it's an attitude. Sometimes we become enslaved by, uh, by our anger. It could be righteous anger or not righteous anger, but anger becomes something that can be enslaving for us. Or unforgiveness. You have allowed unforgiveness to live in your heart for far too long. Perhaps you've become a slave to cynicism or to fear or to prejudices. And for the purposes of this text, it can be anything that is an oppressive power, that that Pharaoh represents those forces that constantly oppose the sovereignty and the purposes of God. So where are you enslaved? What are the forces in your life that are in opposition to the sovereignty and the purposes of God? The forces that work against your well-being, the forces that create fear and then that cause chaos in your life. We have to name them. First step, right, is to name them. But I also have good news for you today. 
that whatever it is, the Lord offers the same freedom to you today that was offered to the Israelites all those years ago, that you can have a different future. You do not have to stay stuck where you are, but you do have to make a choice. And then you have to do the work. You have to stop dawdling at the doorway and make a choice to put on your sandals and grab your food and your stuff and head out the door. Because everything that belongs in the past is in the past. Leave it in Egypt and walk forward into freedom. One more thing. Perhaps you're sitting here today and the thing that you are enslaved to is your sin. Perhaps you have never turned over your life or your heart to God. And you're trapped in sin and in sin cycles that you cannot escape from on your own power. Perhaps you are longing for freedom, but you aren't really sure that that's for you because of all of this stuff, all of this sin that's standing in your way. The forces of Egypt are overwhelming in your life. 1,200 years ago or so, 1,200 years or so from that first night, not ago, from that first night, John the Baptist encountered Jesus and made this declaration in the Gospel of John. Chapter one, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's plan for the freedom of God's children didn't end with the Israelites leaving Egypt. That plan was, in many ways, just the beginning of their story. Instead, God put a plan into motion to deal with all of our sin once and for all, to offer us freedom to live the abundant life that Jesus talks about now and for eternity, to give us a new way to live, a new hope for our future, a new vision for what life might look like, that by the power of Jesus, our lamb, and his death and his resurrection on the cross, we have freedom from everything that enslaves us, freedom from the fear of death, freedom from the pharaohs of this world, freedom from the powers and principalities of the spiritual world. In Jesus, in the Lamb of God, we are made new. In Jesus, the Lamb of God, we have a future and a hope. In Jesus, the Lamb of God, death was dealt a final blow, and we walk in freedom. So church, I want us to claim our freedom this morning. I want us to claim the power of Jesus, the Lamb of God, over everything that enslaves us. The Israelites left their slavery behind in Egypt. Let's leave ours on the crosses. The death of the Hebrew, light, of the Hebrew Lamb meant a new hope and a new future for Israel, but the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, means a new hope and a new future for every one of us. And just like we have to make decisions together as a community and we have to make decisions individually as people, I think we collectively have to choose to leave behind Egypt in our past while we individually name those things that are the Egypts in our own lives. That we all have to be headed in the same direction, right? Even as we individually are naming those things that are keeping us trapped. So let's take to the crosses this morning with our pencils and our sticky notes and our hastily written prayers to declare the power of Jesus, our lamb, over our lives, over our futures, over our sin, over our attitudes, over our money and our time, over all the things that keep us trapped and keep us stuck. Let's claim it as a church with our voices as we sing. Let's claim it as individuals with our prayers. I wanna invite you to the crosses this morning to step into the new future that God has for you. Not that we're not neat and naive, not that it won't come without work, not that it won't come without a setback, but that you have a new future in God as you leave behind the things 
that are enslaving you. Pray with me. God, we declare, we declare the lamb, the lifeblood of the Lamb of God over this place. The saving grace of the living Jesus who voluntarily sacrificed his blood so that we could walk in freedom. That the pharaohs of this world, that the powers and principalities of the spiritual world, that those things hold no power over us because of the blood of the lamb. God, may we declare that this morning with our hearts, with our voices, may we declare it with our prayers. We offer this time to you, Jesus. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us?